Hello, lovely friends. Welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a PYP Teacher. This is Luke Gerlach with Think Chat, and welcome to Confession 130 as we are unpacking this beautiful book by Zaretta Hammond, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. And this week we'll examine the influence of culture and shine a light on our need for awareness. So thinking about that, greetings from Lima, Peru. I'm in, oh, I had such a pleasure leading some workshops here, as well as taking some time for some exploration and um, personal development. And so if you hear, my friend, sorry, if you hear a rooster crowing, a dog barking, or a truck going ding, ding, then you know it's not Houston, Texas. And so thinking about this, Zaretta Hammond states, building background knowledge begins with becoming knowledgeable about the dimensions of culture, as well as knowledgeable about the larger social, political, and economic conditions that create inequitable education outcomes. She continues, teachers also have to be aware of their beliefs regarding equity and culture. Yeah, that's not heavy at all, <laughs> but it's so true. It's like um, our perception of our own culture versus other cultures. You know, how are we giving um, or making sure that all children have equitable access um, and trying to address some of our biases because we all have them. And we've all heard about um, culture being referred to as an iceberg, which is the work of um, psychologist Edgar H. Schein. But Hammond refers to it as a tree. And a, a tree has many different levels, but it's also part of a bigger ecosystem rather than being socially isolated. So this makes sense to me, right? With the roots growing really deeply, the trunk, and then of course, what you see um, is the branches, right? And the leaves. And so because culture have, um, all cultures have similar roots, um, but how we might engage or show them, which might be the leaves, um, might be different. And so if, you, if you've ever seen that cultural iceberg model or a tree diagram, you know that there's a tip or the canopy of a tree, which can be quite superficial, right? It's what we, we um, identify each type of tree as, as you know, kind of needles, what kind of foliage comes off of it. And when we're thinking about culture at that superficial level, it's what we can see, such as the food, the dress, the music, the art, the holidays. And these are at a surface level. And if we were to describe them and say, this is exacting as of a community, we would now call that tokenism. Like we're tokenizing what a culture is based on physical features. And for example, like when I moved to Dubai, someone asked me, if I knew how to surf and did I know any celebrities and why wasn't I not blonde because I grew up in California and I started to begin talking like a valley girl, like, yeah. And if you don't know what that is, go, you know, research it on YouTube. Um, and then I was like, yeah, I so know so many actors uh -huh, and would walk off and it's really fascinating how people uh, or some people can attribute you of who you are and where you're from or based on where you're from. And I find that 
really fascinating. And she talks about that the next level as we're going down, when we're thinking a little deeper, she still calls this a shallow culture. Shallow. That's really interesting. And so um, Hammond talks about that shallow culture makes up everyday social interactions, such as our friendships, our concepts of time, personal space between people, our communication styles and eye contact. And these aspects help us to know how to interact within society. And for an example, I've probably shared this before, is that when I first moved to Germany, I had a difficult time interacting with everyone because I didn't have the language. And every time I left a shop, I'd hear someone say, choose. And I didn't know how to respond. So I quickly just grabbed my bag and walk out the door. Very rude. Like, or from a German point, it's like, wow, rude. I said, bye. And you didn't say bye back. And it wasn't until I had an honest conversation with my German teacher that, so what the heck is a choose? And why are they... Um, you know, saying it to me all the time. She's like, all they're doing is saying goodbye. And I thought, oh, silly rabbit. But it's about that um, shallow culture is about that social interaction. And when we don't have it, it's amazing how um, disconnected we feel. Like I have enough Spanish that I can't understand everything. But when grocery checkers are asking me questions, I can at least understand what they're saying and uh, and, uh, and I can respond and I can order and that sort of thing, which is cool, right? That's a lot more than I had in German. So Hammond describes the next level, is, which is like her roots. Um, so shallow culture is kind of like the trunk and then the roots is your deep culture. It's a way of being cautious, consciously, man, I can't speak today, sorry. And unconsciously that drives our worldview, such as ethics, spirituality, health, theories. And she states that deep culture also governs how we learn new information. That made me stop for a moment, to be honest. Huh? Deep culture? Let me read that again. Also governs how we learn new information. I thought, what does your culture have to do with you learning new information. And then she gave an example, which made sense. She said that um, in Eastern culture, the color red means good luck, while in most Western cultures, red means danger. And I found that fascinating because I think of where I grew up in the U.S., you know, like stop signs, stop. So uh, if you were to say in German, stop, it's so brusque. But I I can see where red is related to danger because growing up, you know, um, I had images of red being associated with danger and violence and blood and death. And of course, not all Americans, you know, grew up with that. But in my age group, I would say a lot of us did. And because it's been a common thread since I was a little girl. So that makes sense to me. And naturally, we're going to have learners from different cultures in our classrooms. So how do we support them? Because they're all different little people. And what Hammond suggests is that don't even focus. Don't waste your time. And I was like, don't waste your time. She's like, don't waste your time. 
on the surface level stuff. Don't waste your time on the shallow stuff. Go to the deep things that we all commonly share. And I was like, hmm, interesting. So Hammond says that we should build relationships that are based on the deep level. We're looking at our shared values, our principles and worldviews that we all share and also the differences so that we can recognize them and be respectful of them. And this makes sense because this is the heart of being internationally or globally minded, right? We're seeking for areas where we have more similar ground and working from there. And that is logical to me. So thinking about deep culture, then you have to have relationships built so you can have those conversations about deep culture. It's not going to happen overnight either. So even with similar cultures, there's going to be differences about how that culture is orientated, whether through collectivism or individualism. You're saying, what? So Hammond speaks about people um, moving from different cultures or communities and how it can create individualism, meaning um, I'll give you an example. So when I first moved to Europe, I'm a very warm, interactive person. I have been all my life, but I've also lived in places where the weather was suitable for communal gathering. Like I grew up in Northern California where, yeah, winter was gray, but it didn't, it wasn't um, improbable that during the winter you could go out. All the summers, yeah, it might be hot during the day, but, you know, cool um, that you could go bike riding at night. So there was a lot of communal things at night. And so what's really fascinates me is her work on individualism and collectivism is she talks about um, this of how it shapes our interactions. And when I moved to Europe for the first time and looked at the, the, the culture and how everyone, like, you left school, <laughs> people would scamper home because they didn't want to be in the weather, which is fair enough. And you quickly grab your groceries and head home. And everyone was in their silos except my Spanish colleagues. They would frequently meet up with each other, do things together. They invited me. There was a large community of them within um, the German-speaking city. And anyone was a friend. Anyone could join along. And what I found very interesting is that my German colleagues still uh, love them, but they were very much more um, individualistic. You know, they had a strong emphasis of um, really interesting of holding true to the like building friendships with only people that they've known from university and that sort of thing. Where my Spanish colleagues were like, eh, more the merrier, right? That whole um, essence of mi casa y su casa is because they're very collective society. And neither one is better than the other, but it does shape our level of expectations and interactions. 
of trying to make someone who's more individualistic to try to become more collective. Sometimes that just won't work. And Hammond delves into the process um, further by looking at Hofstede's list. So I don't know if you have checked out the work of Hofstede, H-O-F-S-T-E-D-E. They've made a list of individualism, collectivism, continuum. And they looked at individualism such as self-orientation, individual effort, competition, those types of things, right? And it ranks um, based off of seven different points of ranking um, different cultures and how do how individualistic they are. And it did not surprise me that the United States became first at 91 out of 100 points because we are very individualistic. Um, doesn't mean that there isn't community pockets there, but what I'm saying is it's part of the American dream to, you know, work hard, go to university, get that home, get that marriage, you know, that's part of the American dream. And it's not a bad thing or a good thing, but it's just another way of looking at our value systems and what we want. And while I think about it as like Guatemala scored the lowest in regards to individualism, which means that they have a strong sense of communal decision-making, that everything is resting on the community. And it's about building up the community so everyone thrives, which is very interesting. And so when you have someone who's very individualistic coming together with someone who's very um, communal driven, there might be some clashes. And so we have to be mindful of that. And this represents our students in our classrooms and their background of how they solve problems, which makes sense to me now. And all of this discussion reminds me of an interesting book that I have on my bookshelf called The Culture Map. And this book was recommended to me by a mentor, Dalit Halevi, about being more aware about how culture drives our interactions and transactions with each other um, within the adult world, right? And I remember reading a story, it's quite in the beginning of the book that stayed with me, where a woman was transferred um, from her country. I can't remember, it was a European country, I believe. She transferred to the United States and she was getting feedback and it was, not anything negative. So she took it as that she was doing a great job. Meanwhile, the managers were like, oh my gosh, this woman is ruining our department. And it wasn't until they had a conversation did that she realized that since Americans beat around the bush, meaning we hem and haw, we don't want to tell you our true feelings because we're worried about how that might look, where Europeans are more direct and sometimes it's hurtful, but it's you know where you stand. And because no one did that to her, she couldn't take any corrective measures. Fascinating, right? And so what are specific things that we can do and be mindful of with our learners so that we don't replicate the same process? Of course, we're human. We're going to make mistakes, right? And this is just the nature of who we are, because we have our own perspectives and things that have shaped us as educators, 
But how can we be more aware of why and how we act and think a certain way? That's it. So in regards to our practice, um, Hammond suggests that we be mindful of oral and written traditions, that some learners will prefer to share their ideas in a story-like format. And because in their culture, this is a natural way um, where they are sharing their written and oral traditions and it's about relationship building. It's about demonstrating language skills such as figurative language, alliteration, movement, and emotion. But it's part of who they are and how they share their culture to the next generation. Also something that we need to be mindful of is implicit bias. What the heck is that? And I've been hearing that term quite a bit lately of an unconscious attitude or belief towards certain groups based on their race, their class, and their language acquisition. You know, it's an example of like meeting learners from a certain community and determining that they can't achieve because of their linguistic ability solely from that. And that's such a, we have to be mindful of that, that, oh, or because they have, um, a disability or because they have certain things that cause them to learn differently. Um, they're neurodivergent as we call it now, um, that we just naturally say they cannot achieve. So think about your implicit bias. Ooh, this is where it gets heavy structuralized racialization. And I had to step back a minute for this one. It's how social and political and economic policies strive to seem neutral, but they have a racialized outcome. So I'll give you an example. I don't know how it works in your country, but in my country, we determine all public or state school funding based on how much your uh, property is worth. And then the government collects taxes on that That worth. That makes sense. And how it works is that the areas with the lowest amount of values receive the amount that was collected in their community, while the homes that have a higher value receive a higher payout. That's why you see such a disparity oftentimes between more impoverished areas versus the very rich in regards to what they're offered. Even like their gymnasium might look different, right? And so thinking about that, it, you know, it's justified oftentimes because they say, well, you didn't have to pay that higher property value, so it's equitable. But is it truly equitable? That's the thing. And so what are the things that are in society that create this divide? That's... I mean, it's been happening since the dawn of time, but, and there are things that we can't control, but what can we control in our classroom? So there's no structuralized racialization. The culture of poverty. So there's oftentimes certain stereotypes of families with lower economic means, like they don't care about their kids. They're choosing to live a lifestyle that's keeping them in poverty or 
oh, we know that they're doing something illegal to be able to afford those Nikes for their kids. And my eyes were opened when I worked in a really impoverished school. And I think what's really fascinating is, you know, my parents within even their own community, because majority of the people I worked with labeled them as lazy, but they were struggling with their own issues. And I'm not here to judge on, well, if they're staying home and drinking alcohol all day, there's some issues there that are go beyond what we see and they're doing the best that they can. And it loops into this next piece, which I found fascinating, the cycle of poverty is this is where families are trapped in the cycle of poverty for at least three generations. So there's no living member of the family that has ever possessed intellectual, social, or cultural power to get them out of poverty. Everyone they know in their family is living in poverty. So then why would you want to go to school? Why would you want to? No wonder there's high truancy rates in, the, in this system. Because if everyone in, you, in, in your circle of influence is impoverished, right? Living a certain lifestyle. You're already internalizing as a child. Well, I'm not going to be able to get out. So why should I try? Makes sense to me. Oh, my goodness. As you can see, this book is deep. This woman is smart. And culture has a lot to do with us as educators. And I've engaged with other people around the world who have told me to my face that racialization, race issues is only a U.S. problem. And ironically, most of the time, the people telling me this are of Caucasian background. And I wonder if I went into that same culture and I asked the same questions that I do to a person of color living in poverty, if I would get the same answer. And so... Thinking about this, how does this shape our schooling? A lot. And so how do we then set up systems so that we can get children of color and of poverty out so that they can dream big? So that's going to be, I believe, the rest of this book. I'm super excited. Are you? Oh, all I'm going to say, friends. It's going to be a wild ride, so let's enjoy it together.